What's up, everyone? Happy Tuesday. Welcome back to Demand Gen Live. Pumped to be here with all of you, I believe, as we make our way to 100 episodes. I think this is episode 95, or I'm starting to lose count, but um, we're going to do something special for episode 100. I'm not sure what, but we'll figure out something cool. Maybe the elusive swag that's been promised to all the attendees for like the past two years. Maybe. (laughs) No no promises here. We only have about five weeks until 100. I don't know if we can make it happen. But before we got started, uh, just a couple of quick announcements. First one, there uh, the keynotes that we do with experts. This one was coming up with Dave Gerhard on Thursday. Uh, will not be taking place this month. Dave has another commitment, and I will be in Mexico, so we will not be having the keynote on Thursday. But please, on the uh, whenever it is the March fourth or whatever the next, the first Thursday of March, we will be back on with an expert. Hopefully, Dave is available, so we'll get into that. And also just wanted to talk through, I'm getting a ton of awesome messages and things like that on LinkedIn from people that are listening to the podcast or otherwise consuming the content and having a lot of success. And so I wanted to just like read out a couple that have come in recently. So to, to share these success stories, which are amazing. And also, um, if other people are having success, feel free to shoot me a DM. I can't guarantee you'll be on the show, but I, uh, it gives me a lot of energy to hear of the real stories about what people are doing with this and having success. So this one came in titled, thank you. Hey, Chris, I've learned a lot from your content. It has inspired me to be much more aggressive as I look for leadership opportunities. I have connected with your strong analytic, analytic acumen and your willingness to go for what is true. So I just wanted to say, send a sincere note of thank you for changing my career as I find my place in the world of marketing. I want to do one more because these things are awesome. This one's long, so I'll kind of like abbreviate it. But Chris, I just want to say a huge thanks to the type of content you produce and how you produce it. I founded a startup in November 2020 after exiting a high growth agency. I decided to do my own thing a little bit later. I almost shut it down middle of last year. I'd been too focused on lead generation and we were still, still weren't getting to product market fit. It's crazy. A lot of how we measure for our clients focuses on attention metrics. So you'd think we would do the same. And so after listening to your stuff, just over a year later, one of the biggest global consultancies wanted to do a test with us and we're piloting a product with them. It's a massive opportunity. Anyways, keep it up. I've made a promise to myself that one day Refine Labs will be, uh, I'll be a customer of Refine Labs. So cool stories from people. I just wanted to shout that out. I know a lot of people have their own stories about how they're taking this information and using it. And so, uh, yeah, I just wanted to share a couple because it makes me happy. And now moving into uh, the topics, I'm actually going to start with something not on the agenda. It's just something that popped into my mind and it's doing pretty well on Twitter right now. So I'm just going to share this and then we're going to go into a little bit of it. So my tweet, it's funny, the companies with the least resources are typically the most innovative in marketing. Lack of resources forces innovation. It's the only way. It's a really interesting topic to think through about where you see marketing and innovation, I can just talk through at, at what's happened at Refine Labs. I believe that the lack of resources initially and the way that we've been able to grow has basically forced innovation. If we had $10 million in funding, there's no way we would, I mean, I, it's hard to say, but if we had $10 million in funding, it's less likely we would have pushed LinkedIn the way that we did. It's less likely we would have done three podcasts a week It's less likely we would have done this event every week on Tuesday night for almost two years. 
And so, but when you have a lack of resources, even the fact that we, that actually tried these and persevered through them, I think is really interesting. And so I'm, I'm trying to help companies see, cause the thing that I hear from marketers all the time, and I see it in the comments on LinkedIn every single day. Yeah, but we don't have enough budget. How are we going to get this done with no budget? And it's like, we had zero dollars when we were when I started this company and we're able to get this stuff moving and get budget through results. So the thing I'm trying to help marketers understand is if you don't have budget, there's only two situations. Either one, you're in the wrong company, you should go find another company to work for, or two, the stuff that you're doing in marketing isn't working. There's the only two reasons that you don't have enough budget. And so, and if you don't have a lot of budget, what you do have is you have time, creativity, customer focus, other things that you can deploy that the people with all the money that I talk to every day, I had more, more talks today with companies that are 10,000 employees and above, and they can't change anything in their system. They can't try anything new. There's walls and constraints and things everywhere. Their marketers are just running some big machine. Everyone else over here complaining that they have no resources, wishing that they were the, like, you know what I mean? Theoretically wishing they were the 10,000 employee company that can't do anything new in marketing when what they have in front of them is the best position ever to be. To be able to go out and get forced to basically the people that win. I keep talking about like low tech, but it's like, it's lightweight everything. You know what I mean? The things that you need are you need a point of view, you need a good story, you need to understand people, you need to have a good strategy, all things that don't require budget or technology in order to make happen. And so just kind of wanted to get it started there. It's fascinating. And I think that just trying to help people see that if they're in this position, it doesn't feel like it's the right thing. But um, as I look back, Reluctant to say all, but most, at least most of my marketing innovation has come with no budget. When I started to actually build this at the Series D company, Vapotherm, I worked for, I begged for a $500 budget to test Facebook ads. And then over the next 18 months, we grew that to more than a million dollar a year budget. But the 500 to start, and then I made that 500 work. And so I feel I watch a lot of people that come in with media budgets of $200,000 and just throw it away like it's monopoly money. And so having a real respect for the money starting from a lower amount and making that work. If the shit in Google that you're running doesn't work at $50 a month, it's not going to work at 50,000 a month. So you got to figure out how to make it work on a low budget first and then scale things that work. So we'll get it started there. I can parlay into the next topic if we want to. Yeah, let's do it. All right, cool. Where are we going to go from here? The BDRs reported in the market. Yeah, yeah I guess. It's the, <laughs> every, everyone has been waiting there like, Chris, just finish that segment so we can hear about what you think about the BDRs. Um, <laughs> I hyped it up. Everyone's waiting. <laughs> yeah, so let's go through it here. So should BDRs report into marketing? This was actually a question that came in through LinkedIn. The person who asked the question had mentioned that uh, she believes that because she's owned a BDR function in the past, it's been her differentiator and has made her a better storyteller, marketer, and leader. Can't wait to hear your thoughts. The first 
place where I start here is I don't really believe that the place where this function reports in really matters. I think that it's totally dependent on the skills of the people in the company, what the BDR function is actually built to do, and what your overall go-to-market strategy is. And so I think that it can play in both. I know that's kind of like a wishy-washy answer for some people. I see both sides of it. I see companies that say BDRs or SDRs, whatever you want to call them, work on the marketing side. So then marketing owns all of the top of the funnel. And then other companies have them work in sales because it's a blended inbound-outbound model and it's really more of an outbound team. And I think that there's some combination of both. But what is the real question here? Like people love to debate whether BDR should work in marketing or sales. What's the real, the real question is what should a business development function do today? My belief is that people are asking the wrong question. And so, because the same function of what a, whatever you want to call it, BDR, SDR, pretty much the exact same activities, the exact same metrics, the exact same hiring profile has existed for the past 10 years, despite how much has changed inside of how B2B buyers want to buy. And so if you think about, if I was going to start from scratch, not try and figure out which team these people report into, if I was gonna start from scratch to set up a business development function today, what would they do? How would they be measured? Who would I be looking to hire? Throw some things in the chat, I'll read it afterwards. It's like, it's not, the things that that function does right now. And so some of the things that run through my head, like subject matter expertise required, like these people should be able to provide value, have potentially done the job of your buyer before, could be part of a community, right? So like imagine a hybrid where you have somebody like, it's almost like some of the things that people at my company do where they're not comped on meetings, they're part of communities, they're true experts, they go into things with the right intent, they create a ton of demand, affinity for the company, education for people in the market, which leads to business outcomes for us without doing cold calling, without looking for intent data, without fucking putting people in outreach cadences. Like I couldn't believe this one. I'm going to go on a tangent right now because it was so fucking annoying that yesterday in the comments of LinkedIn, I basically was, someone was like, we're using these fields on the form. And I was like, you know, you could get an enrichment tool so that you don't have to have these other fields on here. And then somebody's like, which company should I use? Clearbit is too expensive. And I go, uh, the one that I see most commonly used is zoom info. And then today, 24 hours later, I get a cold email from a sales rep at Zoom Info that says, hey, thanks for the referral. Do you want to have a meeting with us, by the way? I'll give you a fucking gift card. And it's like, I don't have to look far to remind myself how much I hate the sales practices that happen at that company. Anyway, back to the topic here. Thinking about what this function could actually do I feel like you'd end up with a much different product today, a much different way to measure it, a much different set of activities that people would do, and a much different set of hiring profile that you would, that you would bring to it. And if you mixed all of those things together and put it into a modern go-to-market strategy, 
like then then that function reports to marketing. Then we're in a position where that's what I would do, right? So if I think about this as a marketing leader and people are like, hey, like the 10 person SDR team is now coming over to your side, I'd be like, I'm fucking rebuilding this. I'm rebuilding it built on subject matter expertise, way less headcount, forget the activity metrics. Marketing owns the entire top of the funnel. So you can score me on that. We're not gonna over invest in driving meetings that don't close. And we're going to set ourselves up to provide a significantly better customer experience and a significantly better dark social presence than what we're doing right now with 10 people banging the phones, trying to get meetings that, with people that usually don't buy. So I think we took that in a little bit of a direction. There was, there was also a little tangent, but we'll, I'm sure there's going to be questions on this one. I think it'd be great to go back and forth because I love the differing of opinions that are here. So I'd love some people to come on and talk through what they think, challenge me, agree with me, whatever. Awesome. We have several other questions that are taking us into a different topic. And so I'm, I'm seeing if there's anyone with a point of view. A lot of people were agreeing with what you were saying. Um, a lot of people were questioning whether SDRs are primarily outbound or inbound, but not a lot of, a lot of specific questions on this topic. Okay. Let's, um, right, let's go to different questions and then we might end up back where we end up. Yeah. So yeah. James had a good one. And then Bob's got a great question. We haven't had a, a, had Bob on in a minute. So I want to bring nice. him on soon. But James, I loved your question. Excited to have you here tonight. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hey. Hey. Hey, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah. So my question as uh, just some context. I know that um, based on things I've heard in the past, you you talking about one of the actions that a lot of marketers miss when kind of just starting out, uh, getting to know the company, getting to know the customers is actually talking to customers, actually talking to prospects. And that's a, a skill that I believe you said that you've, you've pride yourself on that kind of sets you apart. So I do, I'm just joining an organization right now, uh, leading the demand gen team. And so I'm, I'm wanting to start those conversations. So what mm -hmm. questions should I be asking to really get into the meat of the subject? to get those insights that I, I can use and leverage. Mm -hmm. So it's great that you're uh, coming like leading demand gen and thinking about this topic. This is for some listeners afterwards, because my belief in the future is that the path of coming from leading a, like a T-shaped function of marketing to becoming a CMO, the secret unlock is understanding customer insights because it drives the entire strategy. It really is true. And so the things that I'm looking for, and I'm going to kind of like talk through my progression. I've been doing this since 2013, and it's a skill that over time I've honed. So I no longer need to think about what questions I'm asking or why it feels very natural. And I don't do it in a structured interview setting anymore. I do it all the time when I'm just talking to people, like I'm in an interview and somebody's talking about like, something that they're using. And then I ask about why they're using it, how they're measuring it, things like that. And I get a little bit of research. I get to understand like, how are they measuring marketing, whether or not the tool is working, do they see things in the right way? So I'm like, and if you do that hundreds of times over a month, you get a lot of interesting insights. But when I back up and I went to like more of a formal interview setting, one of the core things that I think sets apart what I 
did back in the day that I still think is tremendously valuable is that I was doing in-person on-site interviews. And so I got to see when they were in the break room, what were they doing? What, what did the office look like? What were the KPIs that were on their board outside of the manufacturing floor? You know what I mean? Who were the people in the office? What did the office look like? You get interesting sort of like insights just being in the building. For me, sometimes it was hospitals, manufacturing facilities, chemical plants. There was plenty of different, you know, bottling facilities for Coca-Cola. There was plenty of different places to go see what people were doing for market research. And when I am looking at it, I'm looking at like, who is this person as a person, right? Um, So that's like one thing. There's where do they get their information from? So what source of information do they trust? There is a, how are they, how is the success of their position or function measured? It's huge if you're trying to figure out how to position your product in to something that you understand whether it aligns with the current measurement that they have, or in our case, that my belief is that the current way that they measure marketing is flawed and we have a better way. But either way, you, you need to know what the current state is. You need to understand what are the like main challenges that they're facing. It's hard to at, like ask that question directly, so you can need to kind of get indirect to get into that. But what are like some of the biggest roadblocks that they face? Those are sort of like the 1.0 questions that I answer, like the topics. And then after that, it's when they answer, why? How does that work? Could you tell me more about that, right? And you get the real stuff when you start to dig deeper into each of those specific things. Like, for instance, what is your, like, how is your team scored? And then they go, MQLs. And then I go, you know, how do you feel about that thing? And they'd be like, well, I don't think that, I think that it's dumb because every time I hit my MQL target, my sales team doesn't hit their target and then they're mad at me. And you're like, well, if you had control, what would you change it to? And then they tell you, and you know what I mean? Just by asking a couple of follow-up questions, you get interesting things about how they're measured, how they feel about it and what they would rather do instead if they don't like the current state. So those are a couple of different examples in a structured interview. And it's more like when you're going out, you should have some type of like guiding purpose for the set of interviews that you're doing. Is it to figure out how people buy? Is it to figure out how people feel about this specific like feature? Is it to figure out what should be the next couple things in our product roadmap? So you kind of have like guardrails around what you're trying to accomplish, which might help figure out who are the people that I'm going to select to be in. Is it going to be all customers? Is it going to be all non customers that could be customers? Is it going to be some blend of the two? Why? Um, is it going to be in spite of a specific segment? Is it going to be the leader or the, you know, one of the actual users? So there's a lot of reasons why you would choose one or the other there. And then as you get comfortable with that flow, you might be able to move into, I think, something that is a little bit more of a natural flow where just you become part of the community, right? So who are you trying to do market research for? Pre-sales. So sales engineers, solutions consultants. Yeah, yeah. That's great. What are the top couple of communities where those people hang out? I guess I think a big one is pre-sales collective, but it's a pretty underserved segment. And so yep. there isn't there aren't a lot out there. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So the first thing that I would do is I would go and whoever, whatever, go and find 20 people that fit that like job description and either say, Hey, do you want to be on my podcast? Or, Hey, can I talk to you for 10 minutes or whatever? And start to dig into, are there places where they're hanging out? Who are the people that they're listening to? And then if you start to get to there and you're like, wow, there's a real gap here. There's this one community over here is a LinkedIn group that nobody really likes. There's a big opportunity to like kind of elevate this. Then you got your opportunity because building it yourself is the best. It's so crazy. I wish that I did. There was another announcement today. I'm not going to use the company's name, but there was another announcement today of another company that went out and bought a community. And what people don't understand is that the act of building the community has a ton of value, way more than just buying it and siphoning off the email list. The act of building the community means that you have to be able to provide value, that it creates a stream of customer insights, that it creates a ridiculous content strategy, that you take it with you. It's almost like never going to the gym and then all of a sudden being in shape, but you haven't done all of the exercise or have the self-discipline or anything to stay in shape. So you magically come in shape and then all of a sudden you just go out of shape again. I just wish that, that a couple of software companies could look at this and be like, instead of raising so much money that we should buy a community to think about how to build the best community from the ground up. And so that's, it was another tangent, but to think about that requires an entirely different lens about marketing and demand gen. But that's what I would lead to. So you're kind of looking about where they hang out, look at the opportunity. If there is an existing community, then you start to get in the flow there. You see what content are people posting? What are people saying in the comments? There's so much gold in the comments. I literally read all of mine all the time. There's so much gold in there. There's so much gold in comments on the comment that I leave on someone else's post. All of those insights are super interesting and what people are saying, what people are asking, what are the titles or companies or like other things like that for the people that are not agreeing with me. So you just get a bunch of insights there. So that was a long-winded way of saying that uh, as soon as you feel comfortable to move from structured interviews to more of just like it's happening in the flow, I think that's where you really want to be. That's great. Thank you. Happy to help. I appreciate you asking the question. That was probably my best ever explanation for how to do customer research. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> All right. I'm going to bring Bob on. He's got a very specific question with something he's working on. And then your wish came true. I've got a lineup of three people with great SDR questions. So we'll circle back to that topic. That's great. But Bob, what's going on? What are you working hey, on? Hey, Chris and Megan. I appreciate hey, Bob. Time. What's happening? So, well, what's happening is this weekend, I got the dreaded notice from Facebook when I went to go place my latest ad that they are discontinuing the targeting that I use. That yeah, it's happening to a lot discussed. of people. Yep. So um, I was curious to get your take on, you know, it wouldn't be a Bob question without like multi parts, but real quick, <laughs> um, you know, essentially, if you remember back in the day, we, you had mentioned like the, you know, the associations, academy of whatever subspecialty in medicine, oh, yeah. like you used. So those are all gone. Now, mm -hmm. I since long pivoted away from what we realized after my first month with the company was that eye doctors were not really our target audience at all. And so, you know, who is goes, it? You know, optical Op retailers. So opticians yeah, that own, yeah, yep, yeah. they don't have a doctor on site, so they need our service. Yeah. So, you know, we pivoted hard and, you know, kudos to, to you and the team, because quite frankly, without your content, I probably still wouldn't have a job. So that's why, you know, how you started off the segment. Love the success that. that we've had, you know, typical tenure, 18 months, I would have already been out of here after 12 months if we weren't generating 
off of our paid social strategy, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in the first year was was pretty slow going, but things have been picking up. The pipeline is accelerating. It's like, crazy how it happens, huh? You drive like your message into the market over a long period of time. It's a snowball. It rolls with you. It carries. So it's, yeah, it's the compounding effect that people don't understand. Yep. I mean, my W-2 was light the first year and a half here, but I can tell you, I'll probably have my best year ever this year. Hell yeah. So it's it's kind of crazy. That. So I appreciate all of your guidance and support. So to get into the question, what they've done is, um, you know, well, essentially I have no way to target optical now. If I type in all I had before was, mm-hmm. um, you know, job titles. So there was five or six job titles, like three or 5,000 total users with those with job title of optician. And I had one keyword for likes basically, which was optician. So anyone who likes a page having to do with opticianry was a little broad at like 250,000 people, but the CAC payback was like, I'm measuring it in weeks at this point. Right. Mm -hmm. So I I don't have enough ad money, right. Cause I'm too low, but I actually, with the success we had, I got my budget doubled from uh, a couple thousand a month to like 4,000 a month. So not not much to write home about, but I was looking forward to, to do more with it. So it was paying off and it was working great. Now that's gone. So my first plan of action is I've never done this before. So maybe this will force me to innovate, but I can retarget everyone who's previously watched my videos some percentage of a time, 25%, 50%. And the average video over the past year got, let's say 30,000 users. Some got a hundred thousand. If I did a brand mm-hmm. awareness for reach and some, if I did landing page targeting, got like 30,000 users. So mm-hmm. I have no idea what the total market's going to be because I built the ad set and it won't tell me. It's like, we can't define yeah, it won't. the market. Yeah. But I figure it's, it's got to be basically that TAM that I was previously capturing. So that's my first plan of action was yeah. to try that. What are your thoughts around that? So I think that's a good move. A note for everyone listening. So when the landscape changes, marketers need to adjust, but you can definitely adjust, right? So I have confidence, but when these things happen, I've gotten, you're not the only person that's asked me this in the past week. Like a lot of people have asked because major ways to target natively on Facebook have gone away. And now it's basically like interests or like core demographics, male, female, things like that. So it's really starting to go away on your thing. I would do two separate things. What you mentioned with retargeting based on video views. And I would turn on the algorithmic expansion that Facebook has on top of it. The audience, oh, the audience, network audience, ex- audience expansion, not audience network. Oh, um, audience expansion. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. So it'll take, it'll look, and it's basically like a more, more controlled lookalike audience is a good way to put it. So it looks at all the people in there. Facebook has incredible proprietary intent data. There's a pixel on every single website, so Facebook can put all that together. You've ever been to a software company's website, and then the next time you went on Instagram, saw a story ad for their competitor. They're not targeting you that way. That's Facebook's proprietary intent data, way better than the shit that B2B companies use right now. And so put on the expansion, which will then open up the targeting a little bit more. And I would do the same thing for website visitors. So I would do website visitors and then check audience expansion. And I would run both of those and test them side by side. Gotcha. Unfortunate. Well, I don't know that I ever have it set up to, I mean, I, I have the pixel and I've tracked landing page hits. But mm-hmm. I don't know that I even have the targeting set up to actually track my website visitors. If the pixel's on there, then you can go back in time. Okay, I'll figure I'll figure it out. The second part of my question was I posted this on LinkedIn and some people said I should just do broad audience with their and let and let their algorithm do the work. But the broad audience is like 250 million people. So I don't know how far my uh two thousand dollars a month is. Terrible advice. That's what it, it made Horrible no sense. Horrible advice. To me. 
And like two yeah. or three people. Maybe if you're selling them. forty, maybe if you're selling forty dollars shoes with direct response ecom, you can try and wet the algorithm. Even even then, iOS fourteen is not passing back a lot of checkout conversions, and so it's messing up the the uh, the data. So um, I yeah, I couldn't disagree more with that advice for your use case. I figured you would. And then maybe it's just a fact that could be a B2C marketer not knowing exactly what I'm doing. So yeah, you know, appreciate that. And then the third part of it was the agency software that you use to target in yeah. the absence of me having a list, which I really don't have. It's one of the biggest challenges I've had is the sick codes for opticians is really broad. I mean, it could get me somebody who makes glass like it, it's just yeah, isn't yeah. good. So I looked into all those SDR tools for like you know, some of those different uh, softwares to look up people and the mm -hmm. zip codes just are dirty. I tried to buy lists. So I don't have a list to upload. My understanding mm -hmm. of that agency data is it's basically you're uploading into Facebook, but do you have any way to target with your agency data, your agency software? Mm -hmm. Can you so, do like what I was doing natively before? Sick codes don't work well with this thing. There's not enough publicly available data. So the audiences are just small. It can only pull data that's available. So I don't recommend doing that like the industry is not going to be specific enough for you here. So it would end up that you target based on job title. So I would go, you would target based on optician or optical retailer or whatever else they are. That's what you would end up with the tool that we have most likely. There's a, another thing that you could consider, which is to see if there's a publicly available data source of the comp of that. They sell the data of all of the companies that are optical retailers that don't have a, physician on site or whatever it is. And then you could try and target that account. You Then you could run that account list and target every single person that work in those accounts. Um, you yeah. could do that on Facebook or on LinkedIn. Yeah, those lists are really not, I mean, it's one of the challenges, like even generating yeah. that list. I just haven't found anything good. And I bought a couple and I know my market in California, for example, and I would, I could just look at it and say, this list is like 30% accurate. It's just dirty. Yeah. So, when we were targeting hospitals, we had a huge amount of success being able to buy the data because it's publicly available and there's not that many of them. And so it's very clear, but probably not as accessible for what you're doing. For medical subspecialties, it would be great, like a cardiologist or a diabetic, you know, a, you know, mm -hmm. diabetic retinopathy specialist. You could absolutely find that. But for it's like opticians are kind of retailers. So, it's yeah, like, yeah, it's not like a, you get a like, grocery store owner. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really medical. I totally get that. OK, sir. I uh, totally appreciate it. So the so the agency software, I was just curious, maybe for other people that don't know, because mm -hmm. this had me you know, potentially considering if we could get expanded budget here to get that agency software or to use an agency like yours. I didn't know maybe if you could speak a little bit to how your agency software works to help you better target than what yeah, yeah. people are trying to do natively in Facebook. Yeah, Clearbit and Metadata are both options here and some of the ABM vendors have come along with ways to target on Facebook and Instagram, which I have not tested in a ton of detail. In theory, I believe that the core of what a Facebook or a Metadata would do, or sorry, a Clearbit or a Metadata would do is a better technological solution than the way I understand the ABM platforms do it, but I don't have enough knowledge to make that statement for sure. And basically like you go in there, you have a, it's basically like you have the LinkedIn targeting set up and you can figure out what are those things and then you can select them and then it creates a list of, of the people that you can't see. And then it uploads that as a custom audience into Facebook and Instagram automatically to deploy. So we typically will use Basically, the same things that we use in LinkedIn, company size, a named account list for some and a job title functioning with then some exclusions on job titles or job functions. 
if you can't do it in LinkedIn, then I don't think a tool would help you do it like the ones that we're using. So I would gotcha. try and see if you can do it in LinkedIn first. Yeah. So I, you know, I previously ran ads in LinkedIn and this is the last part. I don't want to monopolize the time, but so I just recently went back into my LinkedIn ads because originally, you know, I ran a bunch of ads and it was very expensive. Obviously it was like 10 X more expensive for the inbound, got a couple inbound for the cost. And mm -hmm. I just said, I'll just, for the money I have, I'm just going to try to maximize Facebook because it totally. was, you know, that's where my, there's a couple of people like uh, Perry is on here and there's a couple of um, opticians that have these big user groups on Facebook and, you know, some of them have 30, 50,000 people. So those users out there, they are on Facebook every day. So that's why mm -hmm. Facebook has been so effective for us. But um, on LinkedIn, there's around a hundred thousand people with job title optician of some degree. And a lot of them are probably employees within large national accounts. But my question to you, just final question would be, what's a good, would a hundred thousand ad set, hundred thousand uh, people in an ad set be a good, is that too broad or is that good? Should I run, I'm going to run more money towards that since I have some added budget now. Yeah. I was just curious if that, if that market size sounds good to you. Yeah, that's great. 4K a month isn't going to get you far with those audience sizes though. But yeah, we, I mean, it really depends on the target. I think that like, if you go, you can go down to like a 5,000 person audience, right? I only want to go for C-level executives in my top 200 target accounts. And you could have an audience of about 5,000 people. But what B2B companies can't do is they can't produce enough creative and content that actually creates value in the channel. Right. So as your audience gets smaller, your requirements for creative and content go exponentially up. And so we have audience sizes that will run between 10,000 and a million. It really depends on TAM, ICP, scale. But it, yeah, so budget, it depends on a lot of different factors. But anything in the, like in the 50 to 200 is good. It should be good. But it's a guideline, right? 200K audience isn't going to help you if you're trying to target C-level executives at your top 200 accounts. Yeah, I, I ran previously, just to give you a baseline, like uh, I ran an ad for $2,000 just to see how long it would take to hit a frequency of two, mm -hmm. because you know not all those users are on LinkedIn every day. And it took about a month to get a frequency of two on a $2,000 ad spend with that ad set. So that's actually fine. I could just set it and it'll get a frequency of two with the one ad. And I have a year's worth of ads now I can repurpose. But, you know, I saw so I was just going to try it just to add yeah. something as a backup to what maybe is going to go south with Facebook in a couple months. Yeah. So, hey, I appreciate I think, the time. Yeah, I think suggestion. you'll have success with the re some level of retargeting with audience expansion. It's not going to work forever, but I do think it will. Uh, it's like a better version of what the guy recommended to you about like targeting broad and letting the algorithm run. This is like the B2B version of that. Perfect. Thank you so yeah. much. Man. Have a great cool. night. Thanks, Bob. Good to see you. Great to hear about the success too. All right. So I think we're about to go down a, a BDR, SDR little rabbit hole here. I've got a huge lineup of questions all covering some different angles. So I think this will be fun. Chris, um, another Chris, Chris Thompson. Welcome to the show. Excited to have you here and, and uh, have you ask your question live. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, it's actually my first time in the group, so definitely, definitely pretty excited. Um, yeah, man, we're I'm, excited to have you. I'm from Kansas City, but uh, it seems like mostly marketing groups, so definitely appreciate kind of the difference of opinions. <laughs> but yeah, a little, a little background to uh, provide context to my question. I am a BDR for a 
software consultancy, um, which sells enterprise BPM software. A typical deal is going to be 300,000 and up, you know, multiple year implementation type of thing. But I come from a freight background. So our outreach before, at least in freight, was pick up the phone and start dialing. I call somebody on Monday, I'm moving a load by Friday. My company that I'm working for now essentially has just grown through radiation, farming old accounts. Mm -hmm. And then they bring me in to do the pick up the phone and start dialing thing. But I'm seeing as, you know, our target audience is CIOs, CTOs, basically C-level people in enterprise companies. Yeah. How am I going to get to these people? They're not answering LinkedIn messages, cold emails or cold calls. Keep in mind, I've only been in this for a month. Okay. So you've been doing it for a month. Has anything that you've been doing worked so far? Um, I mean, I've gotten some opens. We use sales off, so it tracks that type of stuff. But um, as far as any responses or any traction, no. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, does, uh, does sales loft report back to you if people like unsubscribe or report spam? We're actually supposed to put an opt out link in there, but I don't do that. Okay. Keep that, keep that one to yourself. I think that's against the, the, the rules, but that's cool, man. Yeah. The reason I ask is because every BDR that sends me an email shows that it got opened, but then I open it and I click the top three buttons in Google and I click report spam and unsubscribe. Right, right. <laughs> um, and so they're back at, at HQ being like, yeah, we got noped, right? So it can be, those metrics can be a little deceiving. This is essentially the challenge that I think a lot of companies face right now. A ton of cybersecurity companies try to do it with CISOs, with 23-year-old people that have never worked in a B2B company at all. And now they're tasked with going and figuring out how to get a CISO to provide enough value to them to get them interested in coming to a meeting. And it's just like, this is the worst strategy I've ever seen, right? But a lot of companies do it because that's what they did for the past 15 years because of predictable revenue and just don't rethink what they could be doing instead. I'm going to give you the advice that I would give, but understand that the constraints in your company probably prevent you from doing most of this, right? Based on how you're measured and how you're gold. Uh, if they're looking at activity metrics, if they're looking at how many meetings that you booked in a month, if they're those types of things would probably restrict you from doing a lot of the things that I would suggest, but I'll just assume that those things are out and we can just have a, a sort of like a free playing field to do those things. Can I, can I preface something real quick? Yeah, please do. Okay. So first they're looking for as a BDR to eventually grow into an AE through pipeline growth. You, you become an AE once you've built your pipeline to 80% of the revenue that our company has brought in has been through the partner channel. We were basically resellers of the BPM platform. And mm-hmm. more often than not, the actual platform is going to get into the enterprise. And then we are going to come in and either staff augment, um, mm-hmm. run the implementation. Like, yeah, yeah, correct. So right now, basically my challenge is one, build up a partner relationship through all of the, AEs at the actual platform and then to go ahead and try and the way that I would get in with these AEs is bring them somewhat of a nibble of a deal through my own outreach and then say, Hey, we don't really care about licensing. We care about services. So here's your licensing deal. Give me services deals on the back end. Yeah, totally. Thanks for that a little addition of color because with that in mind, like a cold outbound strategy, the likelihood of that working is like effectively 0.0%. 
you need to have the person buy in to buying an expensive piece of software. And then after they bought into that, buy into using you to implement it. <laughs> right. Like, and that is a crazy, like the reps of the software company struggle to get their people to go cold and buy the software. And then you're the next piece. So the partner channel is what's going to bring you deals initially. So I agree with you in that type of like style. And then if I was going to do something with this, I would put together some type of like some type of event, group, meetup, something like that, that revolves around implementing BPM software. It's so specific. You're not going to have a bunch of scale. You're not going to have millions of people listening to the podcast, but the people that show up are people that are people that you might effectively be able to help provide value to and eventually offer like have the services that they need. So you got to figure out how to how to have people opt in and be able to collect the people that are either considering or have already decided that they're going to implement enterprise BPM software. And that's really the challenge. Um, I don't think that intent data gets you there. You could try going after BPM software, but again, it's not if you're selling the BPM software, then intent data would help. But if you're selling the services on top of the BPM software, I think that it's it's not 0.0, .0 but I think it's still like 0.01, you know? So yeah, I would I would think about what is one activity where you can get people to opt in to attending something. And if they attend, it means that they're interested or currently like exploring the type of tool that you are offering or the type of tool that you're offering service for. When you're implementing a specific tool, it's a channel marketing play. That's how companies like this grow. That's why companies that are HubSpot diamond partners are able to grow because HubSpot, get, not, they're not good at acquiring their own customers, but HubSpot gives them enough where they can grow. Right. Same with Marketo, same thing with every, every tech vendor. Appreciate that. Yeah, man. That was a great question. I love the, the nuances in there. It was a good back and forth and I hope you enjoy your first time in here and love to uh, see you again. We'll be back. Cool. Thanks, Chris. Well, I'm going to bring Jason on next. I think between this session with 91 people in YouTube, we have over 100 people watching live right now. Nice. A little milestone. All right, Jason, you had all sorts of questions. Welcome to the show. Excited to have Thank you. you here. And a shout out to Chris Thompson. I'm also calling from Kansas City. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> You know, basically my uh, premise is that it's the compensation for number of appointments that's causing most of the problems with uh, BDRs. I think it creates the wrong incentive in an already inefficient process. And so perfect example, watched a webinar the other day, got a call cadence from the BDR, connected with, with me on LinkedIn. And, you know, he did everything that, you know, you're supposed to do in that cadence. And then when he connected with me, went directly to the meeting, like didn't look me up, didn't go to our website, because if he did, he would have qualified us out immediately. We're way too small. Mm -hmm. uh, the irony is that that was a uh, webinar from predictable revenue on whether or not SDRs are dead. But it's why I believe that many are moving them under marketing. And so if you take away the compensation based on appointment uh, appointments, I'd like to hear like how you're seeing some of the innovative marketing departments compensating BDRs, because I do think that they can serve a valuable function in terms of nurturing leads and so on. I can't tell you what 
uh, quote unquote successful companies are doing with BDRs, but I could tell you what I would do. <laughs> I would comp them in salary. I wouldn't have a variable comp plan for them. Yep. And they get incentivized. Maybe they get bonused when revenue closes, but it's not part of getting to their OTE. And I think that generally, and I'm looking forward to continuing to explore this as we continue to grow at Refine Labs, but I think generally the variable compensation plans that exist in sales incentivize all of the wrong behaviors that are not customer centric and are totally short-term focused and drive a pretty poor customer experience, create unnecessary complexity in the business, and generally is an outdated thinking based on doing sales in 1995, where you controlled the entire thing from the beginning to the end. And now here we are in 2022, where the sales rep can data that literally shows that your sales rep talks to the buyer for 5% of the time in their entire buying process. And you still pay the sales rep the same way as when they talk to them for the hundred percent of the journey. And so I think generally like nobody's out there putting pressure like I have been on MQLs. Nobody's out there putting pressure on sales comp plans. Everyone's just sitting in this little ecosystem, not challenging anything, being like happy with how it's going. And I think that we'll see quite a bit of change happening because it's better for employees. It's better for customers to think about doing some things differently. So that's what I would do. Very good. Thank what you. would you do? I'm also the fan of uh, compensating them under salary. I think that it's the incentive for number of meetings that uh, is causing it's terrible. All the problems, like I said, yeah, and, just you like know, another marketing, thing, marketing, getting comped by booking meetings for the sales team. And then what do they do? They give away $250 gift cards to get their little bonus to have people sit on meetings that never buy. I'm going to talk through, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I have to do this. Yeah. I was inside of a Salesforce instance over the weekend. The company had spent a full year incentivizing meeting with gift cards. They created $24 million in pipeline and closed 380K ARR. What a waste of time. And so it's great. They pumped up their pipeline. And then the other things that happen, the finance team for the next financial planning year blend all the marketing pipeline together. And then they make the projection for marketing's pipeline target based on a blended conversion rate, which gets weighed down because of the super inefficient gift card incentivized meetings. And now they have a pipeline target that's totally unrealistic, which forces them to do all the same dumb shit they did last year again. They literally did 20 out of the whatever, three to $5 million in revenue the company did, you get 10% from incentivized meetings, but it was 60% of the pipeline to get 10% of the revenue. Such a waste of time. Sorry for the tangent well, I interrupted. I want you to finish, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I, had to, well, I just passionate well, I, about I, that one. <laughs> I think to your point, and you talk about this a lot, You know, when you're creating content, is it about getting a lead or is it about getting engagement? And I think that if you use BDRs correctly under salary, didn't motivate them for appointments, you can now focus on what does it take to get engagement? So for example, you could mm -hmm. use it as a prospecting mechanism. And we do this with our podcast is that we take our target list and we research the targets that we would like to engage with. And we invite them to the podcast. And we do that by researching their websites and seeing what they have that is uh, innovative or that might make a good discussion. And we reach out to them and almost 100% of the time they, they respond back and say, yeah, I'd love to do that. Oh, yeah. It definitely works. In all cases, it works. People will most often say yes to come on a podcast when it's asked in a thoughtful way. 
because people want to share the things that they're doing. They are happy about it and they want to share it with other people. And most people do not get invited to speak on podcasts. So when they do, they feel honored and they want to say yes, totally. And then if you keep playing that out and what I was trying to allude to at the beginning is if that is the actual sort of like strategy, wouldn't you want somebody different doing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it kind of like, if you think it changed your mindset and then change the goal, which changes the activities and then it changes the hiring profile. And then you're like, is this even a BDR function anymore? Or is it something different? It's almost like a scaled subject matter expert community strategy is the way that I see it playing out. I've seen, um, there are, there are some sales tech companies that do it, but it's like, I haven't seen a lot of companies do it that don't sell to sales. The skills and the talent that you would most likely want to do that piece would actually be in customer success. Right. Yeah. I mean, it speaks to another thing that you bring up, which is, you know, you get them to this point where you're, you're developing the relationship and now they do want to, now they are sales ready. Now they want to talk to sales. You want to put a BDR in front of them. (laughs) This is, it's, it isn't qualified to answer their questions. Like, (laughs) <laughs> it's so funny because um, we don't do that on any of our calls. Like if a executive is going to book a meeting and have a serious conversation about working with us, we're having an expert that's on there that can truly help them figure out in 30, 30 to 45 minutes whether or not we think that we're going to be able to help them solve their business problem. And then when we are getting deeper into the conversation and then we talk about the things that we help them do and we're like, yeah, and what's going to happen is that we're going to drive such quality inbound flow that's converting to meetings with your reps at like 60 to 80% or more that at that point, we're just going to have them book meetings directly with the rep. And they're like, but like, we want to send that to an SDR. And I was like, <laughs> how would you feel if when you showed up to this conversation, it was somebody that had no fucking idea what they were talking about. You would bail out. We wouldn't even have the second call. You were losing deals because you send your highest quality, highest intent buyers to your least experienced, least talented people. No offense to SDRs. That's not a knock on SDRs. It's just like out of the available pool of the people that could help a customer, there are people that are far more equipped to do that. Totally agree. Appreciate your answer. Thank you. Good chat. Thanks, Jason. All right, we're going to keep this going. I have Susan next. Susan, it's good to have you on the show. Welcome. Hi, Megan. Thank you. Uh, I'm another newbie over here. Um, nice. Taking it. Hi. Uh, taking it you. international. How did you hear about Demand Gen Live? I've actually followed you for a while, Chris. And then um, we met in the Peak community and a few other places. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm a little bit of an introvert and I tend to stay two-dimensional. So... After a while of following this, I'm like, I'm going to go join some of the Yeah, now, look so. at you, now you're here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why don't you dig a little bit deeper into that BDR discussion that you started to have there, where you were talking about, it's not so much the question of who you report to, uh, but it's really, you know, what does that modern role look like? And um, you were talking about subject matter expertise, you know, couldn't agree more, mm-hmm. that ability to generate demand like focus on customer insight so do you want to chat a bit more about that like what else does that role look like and to give you some context i run a podcast agency in toronto 
And some of our clients are sort of in the early seven figures, like one to five million. They've made a lot of money with a very small team because of intellectual property, which means that it was a lot of sign up for this, give us your email that's now stopped working. And so podcasting is what they're exploring. And so we do that. And the reason my interest in the BDR team is because as they scale and sort of expand, there's a lot of founder selling, obviously, totally. like with most things. Yeah. And then it tends to expand the teams which have sort of senior mandates, but selling comes with game. So really that discipline of what does the selling team look like, even if it's a very senior selling team, I wanted to chat about that a little bit. Selling team, meaning like accounting. Meaning like, you know, what breaking down that sort of, yes, in the context of like SDRs, like, Mm -hmm. you know, so the SDR can be a very senior person and it can be, you know, like a a founder, yeah, a founder based thing. So I wanted to just chat a bit more about what those, like those sort of roles were, like dig a little bit deeper into what you started to say there. Yeah. Can you ask the question one more time? I'm like so close, but I literally can't form the thought. uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, I was saying, so breaking down that as like, what is the role of the modern BDR or SDR? Yeah, Yeah. so I'm going to kind of Over and above subject matter expertise and being able to demand generate to, and you know, that top of funnel, what else are we looking for in that role? I truly believe that it's before we think about what those people do or who they are, it needs to be what is the strategy, right? If your strategy is to try and book as many meetings as possible and do it at the cheapest cheapest cost for the meeting, not for the customer, then hiring people that are 23, not paying them very well and having them dial 100 times to book meetings or give away gift cards or do whatever is the, probably one of the most effective strategies to get to the vanity metric goal that, that's been created, right? If the strategy is different, which is that we're trying to drive like full on revenue through it. And the way that we do that is by getting buyers that want to buy to talk to our founder. So our founder can close them at 60% instead of giving away gift cards and meetings. So our founder wastes time selling deals that went at 5% or 2% shit like that. So thinking about what the strategy is would then start to change it. I think that having subject matter expertise is crazy the thing that goes through my head on this one is like i know that there's people like me like nick bennett like other people that could run outbound and almost everyone would say yes to our meeting if the target was marketers nick bennett or i could probably outsell 20 sdrs it's just the truth and so thinking about how does someone have subject matter expertise, credibility with our buyer, the right goals, which create the right behaviors so that they're not in there in the comments being like, hey, can you have a meeting with me? That was a nice comment. And instead, contribute to the conversation, don't need to go in for the meeting in every single point and can be helpful. It's like a whole ecosystem change. You know what I mean? It's like you almost have to strip everything that's happening right now and think about it completely new. Because if you don't, then the old, old way of thinking starts to drag in here and sort of changes things. But that's the way that I, I see it. And at that point, I don't even call that an SDR function anymore. You know what I, I mean? It's like, it's like not, it's not the same. It's like community evangelist type stuff. Mm-hmm. 
there are some foundational sort of discipline things to it that I respect, I think. You know, there are some things to the role and that's sort of where we started this discussion. So I do agree there's a big part of the mindset, especially when you're used to something like a create once and it sort of pays for itself and you've gotten used to that doing it. And then when it doesn't anymore, most people, I feel like, you know, innovation, like you, again, at the top, we talked about innovation comes from being squeezed and you're like, this is not working anymore. And that's kind of what drives change. So yeah. if I might quickly get in with a second part or to the question, you talked as well about the smaller, more targeted your set gets, the better the content needs to get. And, you know, the more you need to focus more, on that. Yeah, it's a, it, mm-hmm. just to rephrase, it's um, as your targeting gets smaller, like if you only have 200 accounts with five people in each account, then everyone's going to see that content in like one day because it doesn't cost a lot of money to deliver it. So then the next day, you either show people shit they've already seen, which is what most companies do. They just run the same ad for a month and people are super annoyed of like, why have I seen this ad 40 times, which actually happens. And because they don't value the content and the creative, they just love buying ads. Mm -hmm. And then if you, so if you took that out and you're like, wow, actually like every day we need to have new creative or we need to have new content in order to do this, then most companies could not deliver on that requirement based on how they're set up right now. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. To, to sort of riff off some of the jokes in the comment, it'll be like one of those bingo situations where you're like, every time I see this ad and you just like ax it off, or better still, because this is an evening event, like a shooter situation, like a shot for every time you see the ad. Yeah. Six, seven, 12 times I've seen the same thing get played. And you're like, I haven't clicked on it so far, so what are the chances? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, I've gone in and seen frequencies above 40 in like Facebook retargeting campaigns, which means that you're just literally annoying your target customer. I mean, it was the first, it was a weird behavior pattern for me. The first time ever that I'd gone into LinkedIn, I'd, I'd seen the same annoying ad trying to give me a soccer ball to sit on a demo for some cybersecurity SaaS tool. And I went up to the top in the top right and I clicked on it and I said, do not show me ads from this company anymore. It was the first time I'd ever done it before, but it was so annoying. Um, and so it'd be, I know that people do that on Facebook or at least used to, I haven't, at least my behavior hasn't done that up until now, but I think that people over time, I've been much more aggressive and unfollowing people when not getting ads that suck. So yeah, the requirements get heavier and people don't understand the negative impact that spending dollars on ads with shitty creative can do. Yep. It can move you in the wrong direction. People don't understand when you load in 500,000 emails into Outreach or Sales Loft and blast it out, the negative impact that that can do to your company. People just love doing volume for the sake of volume to create metrics and don't think about the other person on their side that's thinking, I hate these emails. These ads are so annoying. I've seen them a bunch of times. This stuff is, you know what I mean? Like, People never think about the the negative consequences of what they do at all. Um, people yeah. send me spam DMs, connect with me, pitch me, and then I go up there and I literally remove the connection and they can never, they'll never have the opportunity to send me a message again. And it's like, why, why would you do that? But anyway. Thank you. This was a great uh, first chat and thanks, Megan. Great to all have right. you here. Hope to see you back next week or at a future Demand Gen Live. 
All right, we're going to keep the BDR SDR topic going. I've got Caesar <laughs> next. You also seem like a new a new name, a new face. Welcome, hey, Caesar. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear right. you. Hey. Been a listeners forever. And nice. honestly, this podcast has gotten me raises, promotions. Uh, it got me recruited by like a huge company that unfortunately was giving out AirPods for meetings, which is super <laughs> shitty way of wasting your money. And then recruited again. And so dude, thank you so much. But um, my question is, if you were to take on BDR team and outbound BDR team, what channels would you pick up and put down? It's so crazy. Like I, I wouldn't. There's a better way to get this shit done today. You know what I mean? I'm happy to entertain the question and kind of like go on this track. But the real answer is like, I wouldn't. Doing that was the best way to get customers in 2009. 2022, yep. there's a better way to get customers. But if I was going to, to do it, what I would do is I would get a reliable source of intent data that I know the sources are. I would have already built up some level of a personal, like, I'll just tell you how I would do it right now is I would look for intent data. When I saw the intent data at the account level, I would have somebody on my team use my LinkedIn profile, connect with five or six executives inside of that company, whoever our target buyers are. I would continue to produce the content that I'm putting out and engage on LinkedIn. And then over a four week period of time, all people that are showing their intent are inside of my content stream on LinkedIn, so they're seeing that stuff. So I, that would be one tactic that I would definitely use. And then inside of that, there might even there could be like an event invite or something like that. You could even get more specific. That's what I would do. But the thing is that the reason that strategy would work is because I've spent three years building a presence and a reputation on LinkedIn. Some regular SDR does that same thing. You, nobody accepts your connection requests. Nobody answers your emails. Nobody comes to your events. So it's weird to think about how, yeah, it's like even hard for me to imagine doing, like answering the question real because there's, there's just a better way to do it. I don't know. Yeah, it's an insane role. I like 100% agree. And more than anything, what, so I manage a team of uh, PDRs right now. Mm -hmm. And what I'm doing with them is removing them from following up with, you know, all of these like super low intent, MQLs like ebooks and all that shit, right? Yep. Yep. You're just annoying the fuck out of people at that point. It's a great, um, great first step. Yeah. And really just kind of going into the database and identifying people with some intents based on historical data and then cross referencing that with data enrichment uh, software that we have, a vendor that we have in Zoom info. And that kind of information gives them a better idea of who is actually in a buying cycle. Uh, however, at that point, we're you know, kind of playing catch up, right? And so the, I think thing we're struggling with is what do we, like, it's such a big team that I don't know, I, I need to reallocate this resource Mm -hmm. uh, produce, but how, right? Without keeping them in this role for f the next three years, so yeah. they become, you know, SMEs or I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The reason that 
it's a tough role. Why is it? Because it doesn't align with how buyers buy. That's why there's yeah. friction. That's why it doesn't. That's why people think that it's a tough role because you're doing shit that your buyers don't want. And so instead of like taking this as a signal of hey, like people don't like when we do this stuff to us. People just try and they hire more people and they just do more of it. And then companies get stuck here, which is where you are, which is like okay, now we have whatever ten or fifteen people on this team, so we're not going to have them do cold calling or send emails anymore. We're going to make them into, you know what I mean? Like LinkedIn thought leaders. And then you take a, a profile person that's definitely not equipped to be a LinkedIn thought leader or provide value to your customers. And you sh take that resource and you plug them into a new place where they're set up to fail. And so this is like, if I was in your shoes, I would think about how to rebuild, which is a like, you know what I mean? It's a tough subject. Some people, you know, don't end up coming with you along for the journey, but that's what I would personally do. Cool. You got to figure out who, what are the seats that you need in order to be successful? What are the roles and skill sets that you need to be successful? If there's any people that can fit into those seats and truly have the skills to be successful in whatever roles you need for your new strategy, then you can try and plug them in. If there's people that do not fit into any of those seats and don't have the skills to move on, then they don't. Yeah. And they kind of demonstrate themselves um, pretty, pretty easily. Right. And a lot of it honestly has to do with just common sense. If you're doing something that's so, that you wouldn't like, or if you're sending an email that you wouldn't respond to, why would you send it in the first place? What makes you think this is a good idea? Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Hey man, really pumped to hear about uh, the success well, that you're I having. Would, that was awesome. And by the way, as long as the company changes their mindset, joining a company that's been giving away AirPods for the past year to do marketing and they're like, the AirPod thing doesn't work. We know that. We need something new. That's the best position to be in as a marketer. They have budget. They've been wasting all of it doing shit that doesn't work and you can go in there and turn it around really fast. That's the layups that we walk into a series C and D companies with a new CMO where they haven't done any good marketing for the past since the company existed. And you go in there, they have big budgets, 150, 200,000, you know, three, four, $500,000 a month that's being wasted right now. The data is clear that it shows it. And then all you do is you take that money and you redirect it into a good strategy and you drive major results in a short period of time. So those are for people that is, that is looking for a new job. It's not always a bad thing if the company has been doing dumb shit before because the bar is very low to succeed, the key is that they need to acknowledge that the stuff that they were doing before is dumb. Otherwise, you're going to get in there and be on the MQL hamster wheel. Oh, yeah, for sure. And by the way, I'm trying to get uh, Refine Labs into this company too. So it's stuff all around. Nice, man. Appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Caesar. Have a good night. Good to have you on the show. All right. I got, I got three... DGL loyal community members up for questions, and then we can see how you're feeling about that last agenda item. But Scott, cool. it's finally your turn. I think you you were on YouTube. You came here. You're on live. Awesome. <laughs> First of all, your merch. I don't think you see my shirt, but I got the merch going. It's scrubs like scientists, you know, making my. I don't have a stethoscope, but I wanted to do. You guys have been talking about 
merch looks great scott yeah we weren't getting it done so i'm glad that you went out and did it yourself <laughs> so these are scrubs you know i don't have that stethoscope but you guys are scientists like making marketing better so i appreciate you because it needs help anyway hey uh you know this is right at my wheelhouse you know because i'm one of those people that my strong suit is bb sales for most since college but i've had informal and actually seven years of formal marketing and you know, so you're, you're right at my wheelhouse because this question tonight about should BDRs report to marketing? And for all the companies I've ever worked for, Fortune 50 to small companies, absolutely not. They were doing, you talk about how many companies you come into that, you know, they have 1% success rate or less. Why, why would you report to them? That, that's crazy crap. No freaking way. So now let's put that aside. I'll say what you're doing, creating demand, right? Capturing demand. Yes, then maybe so, right? So that that's what I'm saying is is, and then the whole and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna um, rip off the band aid. Okay. BDRs, SDRs, all that. I'm telling you, they're they're gonna slowly go away. Be less and less and less. They are not needed if you do marketing correctly, like you're mm -hmm. doing, right? But most because, companies don't do marketing correctly. So no, they, they actually, they have to, because all of the, this is just true, like me being honest in what I'm seeing in the market. Every single outsource SDR firm is growing like crazy. Yep. Out of control. Can't hire enough people to do cold calling. Internal teams are growing, right? The reason is it's not, it's a part of it because companies don't understand how to do marketing but it's driven based on what people think about how you go to market today, right? And so if you think about how, as a C-level executive, that has been do, you know, around the game for the past 20 years, and they're like, how are we gonna go to market? They go to market almost the exact same way they did in 2008. Maybe 2012, maybe I'm being generous there, but they, and so they, like marketing is still delivering MQLs for people to call, just makes no sense. SDRs are still pounding the phones, making 100 calls a day, despite how buyer, you know, how buyers are moving. Sales reps, they overhire sales reps and then fill it up with that, fill their calendar with activity metrics with buyers that don't want to buy. And it's just like, maybe it's time to think about a different way. Well, it is. And if you look at the research, which I have been for my book, mm -hmm. the, the younger the generation is, the more they do not do not want to talk to salespeople. Why? Because okay. they know their commission and they don't have their best interest, right? Who do people want to talk to? And you've talked about this before. They want to talk to industry experts, right? So mm -hmm. doing marketing like you guys do and recommend, you drive demand into the company. And when they talk to somebody, they're talking to an industry expert that now, again, I've said this before, I actually have worked for a company that... I knew their problems better than they did because I talked to so many customers in the same vertical markets. I, I would just listen and laugh inside my head because I knew what their problems were. Yeah, it's the same and, situation and, that I'm in. Yeah. yeah. So it was easy for me. And I would drop a couple names of, of like other people they knew and then start talking about things like, hey, I, I didn't question them. Hey, what are your problems? I'd say, here's what we've done for some other companies. Is that your same problems? And they go, how do you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so I'm not a salesperson. And also at the company I'm talking about, 
I told the owner after one year, I do not want commissions. I want to be in a salary and bonuses off of how the company does overall. I crushed it. And, and you've mentioned this before. So anyway, kind of summing it up mm-hmm. is that the, the old models, you're right, it's broken. And the younger the generation, they're not going to want to talk to salespeople even more. It's going to become more and more online. And if they do come in for higher ticket things, right, online, they're going to want to talk to someone that knows who, what the hell, you always say other stuff, but what the hell they're talking about, right? I yeah. want to talk to someone that in the depth knows exactly what my problems are. And mm-hmm. what you're doing is in marketing, they're already 90% of the That's way there. That's what I'm saying. That's the conversations are way different because the person that you're talking to is a C-level executive, has shared content with the rest of the executive team, has gotten their team on board, has gotten budget allocated, understands that they're going to prioritize solving this, typically has a timeline in place, and then they talk to your sales team. Yep. And again, and, and sales team, even that, even that, and I've mentioned this before, it's the KPIs of their problem, right? What, what they're, like you talk about all the time, how many demos, how many calls, get rid of the KPI. The KPIs are the problems. And, and same thing in marketing. And, it's and, exactly and, the same. And, yeah, exactly. That, anyway, so get rid of the KPIs. That's the big problem. Kevin, and exactly what you're doing. And anyway, so going back to your original question is, is should they report to marketing, right? There shouldn't be down the road. Sales positions are going to go away. They're going to have people that know what the hell they're talking about because people want to talk to salespeople. Their KPIs are on helping customers solve their problems. That's it, you know? And they're not on how many closes they have but how many customers they help. And then one last step is once their customers, surveying them after the fact and asking them, how was our marketing process? Mm-hmm. Was it the same as after you've become a customer? That's what people don't do is talk to customers after they become customers and say, hey, mm-hmm. because salespeople, the traditional salespeople, KPIs, force them into a process, right? Set them up for failure with their, for the customer service team, right? The whole process is customer service team says, hey, Scott, Chris, you brought in the exact customers we want. Anyway, there's my intake. Awesome, man. Yeah, I appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, the KPIs are the challenge here. Um, and um, instead of just talking about what people should do, we're doing it here. So yep. um, I'm looking forward to, as the team continues to grow, showing people there's a different way to do it. Hey, I love you guys. Appreciate y'all. Thanks, Thanks Megan. Scott. Thanks, Chris. Yep. Have a good one. Get you soon. All right. Got to bring on Dave. Thanks for being patient. We might go in a little bit of a different direction here with Dave. Let's see how this goes. Good to have you. Thank good you. To good see you to see you all again. Been a long hey, time. Has it? Feels well, like it has. Yeah, like I mean, I, I listen to all your podcast episodes, um, but sometimes the scheduling on Tuesday evenings doesn't work for me. Yeah, so, I get it. Listen, give me some direction here, Chris. I could ask a very brief, direct question, but I think some context would help. And it's kind of a kind of an interesting story. If I could take maybe two or three minutes, which would you prefer? Given that we're kind of like coming up on <laughs> nine nine p.m., maybe. Uh, Maybe kind of the abbreviated. The concise, the concise yeah, question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. This has to do with the issue of LinkedIn ad fraud, which I've never even heard of before. I'm aware of pay-per-click fraud and other kinds of fraud with online advertising. We have a client uh, for whom we just finished a LinkedIn paid campaign. And uh, actually, it was 
very successful. It achieved results of three times the engagement rate of the average for LinkedIn. And in fact, we delivered a high intense sales lead within three months with the biggest company in their major target industry. But the senior executives of this company are very, very analytical. They're all engineers. And they noticed in reviewing the results that uh, some of the people who clicked on uh, our ads appeared to have bogus accounts. So they went to look up these people to see what they were working for. And they were uh, they hadn't filled out any kind of proper account information or anything of the kind. So the allegation from the client comes back to us that, hey, we're paying for a bunch of fraudulent ad results. And I had never heard of this. Uh, they want an in-depth report within 24 hours. And I'm saying, I don't know what to report. You know, we don't have any analytics that can yeah. handle this. And my best answer that we've been able to come up with is that this is, you know, click fraud is, is a pervasive problem. I've read some estimates online that says as much as 25% in pay-per-click. And it's more just More than kind that of, on display ads. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it's more than that on display ads. But so my response to him is, hey, this is just a cost of doing business. If you're a farmer, you got weeds in your field. It reduces your yield, right? If you're going to do online advertising, you're going to have fraud. You got to ask yourself, is it worth the cost of trying to combat the weeds if you're a farmer or the fraud if you're running a pay-per-click campaign or any other kind of advertising campaign? You know, is it, is it worth the effort or, or do you just write this off as a cost of doing online advertising? I'm, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on this. Click fraud happens when people do bad advertising. I'm not 100% certain, but I'm pretty close to certain that any of the click fraud that happened on LinkedIn came when you said enable LinkedIn audience network and then pushed out that ad to a bunch of third-party websites that are garbage that have bots that go and click on that stuff so it can report back to LinkedIn that the website is doing something so that they keep putting the ads there. The same thing happens in display ads. The same thing happens when you turn on audience network on Facebook and Instagram ads. Like that's the reason, right? If you shut off all of the things that Google and LinkedIn turn on by default to help you waste money and you turn off those types of things and you deliver only native content, well-targeted inside of the LinkedIn feed only, I doubt you get any click fraud. And I believe this is truly driven by once you push off of the social platforms that you can control and you put it onto third-party websites in the form of banner ads is when this problem starts. It's not backed by data. This is a whole, totally a hypothesis. Just want to make that clear for people. So do I understand correctly that your, uh, your mitigation would be to narrow the targeting or refine the, the targeting? The placements. The, the placements is the issue. Yep. So where the ads actually get served, most marketers like to take it and click ad audience expansion to go and put it on websites because they pay whatever, $45 CPM in the LinkedIn feed, and they pay $3 CPM on some shitty websites. And so when they add it in, it blends down. So instead of paying $45 CPM in the feed, they pay a blended like $10 CPM. So they get more impressions, but all the impressions are garbage on websites that nobody ever sees. And that same exact thing happens in Google ads and all of the other ad platforms. Well, that's brilliant. It gives us a place to start looking. 
Yeah, um, I would check your campaign. I would 99% sure you have audience network checked on the placements. I don't run any of that myself. I have a colleague that does it for me, but um, boy, I would never have thought to look there. Yeah. Thank you very much. That's a great answer. Yeah. To uh, add a little bit more, just for everyone listening, the the entire everything about ad fraud is based on banner display banner ads. It's where it all starts. Well, I think to differ with you on that just okay. a little bit. I what mean, else you got? I don't know that you could call it ad fraud. It's it's almost more like um, malicious malicious competitors. Maybe it's a different category. But for I like, have known competitors like paper, paper who, click in Google where they click your ads. Yeah, right. Exactly to run up. Yeah, your, I mean to run up your ad cost. And if your if your ad cost yeah. is you know twenty or thirty dollars or more per click, they could do some damage. I don't even consider that fraud. It's just malicious behavior, huh? I mean, you're playing a game that feels like a fair rule in the game. You put a spot on, people can go on and click it. Personally, with all of the things that happen in search, people waste a ton of money on it. And I think that if they thought deeply, they maybe would spend less in Google search. And so if you play those types of games where you want to pay 60, some companies paying $60 CPC for terms, or they're paying $8 for a branded term, and then somebody's going and clicking that thing at $8 a click for their branded term. I just watch a bunch, I watch a bunch of companies come in and they're like, because of the CEO thinks that that we should show up when you search that term or whatever, that's not backed by data. It's entirely opinion that they're going to take another hundred thousand dollars and spend it on Google search. So the CEO feels good about the money that gets spent and they throw a hundred thousand dollars a month down the trash. And I just see it a lot. It's like people just take their money. They raise it from investors and they take it and they just give it to Google and get almost nothing back. So but I, yes, I, I do believe that they're like that situation. I don't think that is click fraud. I'm kind of wish you on this like malicious or something like that. I don't consider that foul play. I consider that kind of like part of the game. Maybe dirty tricks. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. Great. Terrific answer. Very helpful. Thank you so much. Thanks. Happy to help, Dave. Thanks, Dave. All right, that was a question marathon. We're at nine o'clock. There's no way we're doing this last topic. We'll push this to next week. <laughs> you want to move out to some closing thoughts? You want me to get one more question there was a in? Question in the feeling. chat. Uh, oh my gosh, I lost it now. I scrolled. There There's was a lot of questions. Oh, there was, yeah, yeah, I remember it. I just want to make. I saw it and I, I wanted to answer it. The question that was in the chat, I forget who it was from, was. Is the LinkedIn audience expansion as sophisticated as Facebook? Mm. The answer is no, it is not. <laughs> that Facebook's, the way that the pixel works, the way that it's placed on all the websites and the amount of... LinkedIn is not an ad platform and they're not a social platform. At least they don't have the DNA internally to do either of those things. They haven't proven to me that they can do either of those things and innovate on the platform. And the ad product is, I think, is very far behind. It's crazy how much how far behind it is to LinkedIn. The only real value is that the targeting capabilities and there's a lot of attention from certain buyers on the platform, but there's it's just very far behind. When you look at the actual targeting capability, the differences in the costs of Facebook ads versus LinkedIn ads is the difference here. On Facebook ads, you might be paying eight dollars CPM. And then you add audience expansion and you get more qualified buyers 
for another eight or even lower dollar CPM. And on LinkedIn, you're paying $45 CPM for your exact target market. And then you add audience expansion and it starts giving the ads to people that don't aren't in your target market or sort of on the fringe. There's not an intent data stream that I know about, at least not that I've experienced. And then so you pay $45 to hit people that you don't want when on LinkedIn you pay $8 or on Facebook you pay $8 to hit people that you do want that you couldn't otherwise target based on intent. Um, so those are the different the differences is the cost makes a big difference. And then the quality of what I believe that the algorithm has. So we recommend using audience expansion in certain instances, like I mentioned earlier on Facebook and Instagram, and we almost never use it on LinkedIn. All right. We didn't set the record for longest episode, but damn, I feel like we just went on a marathon there. That was a really... Yeah, it was a good uh, deep dive into the yeah, whole yeah. That was a good, we, yeah. I think I, I <laughs> generally know what the, feeling of the title of this episode will be, which will be cool. Um, <laughs> it's cool to kind of like get out of our normal type of flow and talk about some new things. So I thought that was cool. I love the participation from everyone. Great to hear opinions and and to just go back and forth. I learn a lot every time I talk about something like this, and I get to hear the questions and what people think. So I appreciate all the participation. It was also cool. I think we might have, I don't know for sure, but I think we might have set a record for live attendees on Demand Gen Live tonight, which is really cool. So shout it out to everybody. That was cool. I think we were over 100. We still got 60, 61 people here live. And so appreciate all of you. The couple of stories that got weaved in there was amazing about people that are going out. I think Cesar um, and other people that are using this information and literally having a ton of success. That's why we do this. I say it a lot, but I and I say it on the podcast a lot, but I don't think people realize like, most of the people that are on this zoom right now wouldn't be our customer that's not why we do this right we do this to help everyone learn and get better and in exchange what we get is a ton of market research from all of you what are you asking what are you doing what are you thinking and so i believe that we have a something really special here so looking forward to thinking about sort of like what's the i don't know maybe it's like the new year but for me i'm thinking like what's sort of like the next phase for demand gen live um, so I'll, I'll uh, think on that on Mexico while I'm in Mexico sipping a margarita, and we'll uh, come back with some ideas next week. Good to see you all. Thanks, see everyone. Great to see you all. Hey, everyone. Really appreciate you tuning into this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. I just wanted to take a second to say to all of the listeners out there, we just crossed over 40,000 listeners across the world to this podcast. And so super grateful and super happy that for all of you, really appreciate you tuning in, attending the live events, engaging on the LinkedIn content, and now watching us get started up and engaging on YouTube and TikTok. And so thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you. And if you haven't already, if you've gotten value from the podcast... I would really appreciate it if you could go to Apple Podcasts in the review section of this podcast and leave a quick review or a rating. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you very much, and we'll see you for the next episode. Mm-hmm.